Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And we'll go down to the catechism memory work. Which sins are these? Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you been hot-tempered, rude, or quarrelsome? Have you hurt someone by your words or deeds? Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything, or done any harm? And the Bible memory work. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Two, five. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's evening prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day. And I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, so uh, we're going to finish up our discussion of the section in the Catechism on Confession and Absolution, and then if we have time, we'll get into the Lord's Supper. Hopefully we should have some time to do that, uh, getting into the, into the Lord's Supper. Um, but just by way, quick way of review here, uh, for Confession and Absolution, last, last week we outlined uh, four types of Confession and Absolution that exist in our church. We have the uh, divine service public confession absolution that we do every week in the in the worship service uh, where we all say together, you know, I, a poor, miserable sinner, uh, confess unto you my sins and iniquities, so on and so forth. And then the pastor gets up and says, upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce uh, the, the grace of God unto you as a called and ordained servant, forgive you your sins, right? Um, then we have private confession and absolution when it's one person with the pastor um, and you can look at the the right for that the r-i-t-e right for that on page 292 in the hymnal um, and we talked quite a bit about that and we'll come back to that in a second um, and then we talked about prayer right that we can pray and confess our sins to god and receive Forgiveness, like we do in the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then uh, four, we talked about this phrase um, that Luther uses in the small call articles, mutual consolation and conversation of the brethren, uh, where fellow Christians can 
confess their sins to one another and um, fellow Christians can declare the grace of God to to someone who confesses their sins, right? We can remind each other of the forgiveness that we have and possess in the gospel. Okay, so uh, when we talked about the difference of these things, first of all, the the thing that we talked about a lot with the private confession absolution is that this is what Luther is talking about in the catechism. Um, so we kind of went through the history lesson, but this public divine service confession and absolution had not been developed yet in the history of the church, uh, but that the service used to just start with the intro it, right? We kind of talked about that. And the standard for confession and absolution in uh, Luther's day was private confession absolution. Now, we definitely mentioned how that was different uh, for Luther and the Lutherans uh, than it was for the Roman Catholics, right? When, when Lutherans do private confession absolution, it's not, um, first of all, it's not like in a confessional booth, right, like the Roman Catholics have. But more importantly, um, when the Roman Catholics do confession absolution, they view it as a good work that is earning them salvation. And then after they receive the absolution, they have to go and, you know, do extra stuff uh, to, to earn the absolution, if you will. Right. But Lutherans, the point of private confession absolution is that a sinner would have their conscience cleared, right. Would have their, their conscience comforted. And so, um, when Luther writes about confession absolution, uh, pretty clearly this is what he's writing about, is this private confession and absolution. Um, and so uh, practically we talked about uh, what that looks like today. So uh, the way that I do private confession absolution at Beautiful Savior, and um, I, I said last week, you know, I'm happy to do it here as well, is that by appointment, anytime someone can t- tell me, hey, pastor, can we schedule a time for private confession absolution? And then we can do that. Um, also, during Lent and Advent um, at Beautiful Savior, I have set office hours where people can come in for private confession and absolution. Okay, so I think that's uh, the main thing we wanted to review. Uh I guess it's also worth saying, what what's the benefit of private confession absolution, right? Because we, we talked a lot about last week how that it had fallen out of practice in the last 50 years or so, um, and now it's kind of making a comeback in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. So what's the benefit of it? The benefit of it is, uh, I, and I think we talked about this some last week, is that it has specific um, specific forgiveness for, for specific sins, right? So we get forgiveness in the public absolution. We get forgiveness in prayer. We get forgiveness in the mutual consolation conversation, brother. We also get forgiveness of sins in baptism and in the Lord's Supper and in the Word, right? But what's the benefit of the forgiveness of sins in a private confession absolution? Well, the benefit is that if someone has a specific sin, that they know and feel in their hearts that really bothers them, right? A kind of sin that it's like, um, I don't know if God could forgive me for this, right? Uh, and, and that it doesn't have to be like a, 
when I say that, I don't mean it has to be like a really, really bad sin or something like that, right? Um, I just mean a sin that continues to bother your conscience, right? The devil in the scriptures is called the accuser because he likes to accuse us and hold us in our sin, right? The devil likes to uh, to point at our sins and say, look, you don't, you don't deserve to go to heaven, right? God doesn't want to forgive that sin, right? That's what the devil likes to do to us. And so the, the advantage of a individual confession absolution where you go to a pastor who's called and ordained to forgive sins and you say to him, here's this sin that I have that really bothers my conscience. And the pastor says to you, that sin is forgiven as before God in heaven. That is a very important and I think helpful and comforting thing for for the sinner, right? Um, and we all need that, right? I, I mean, um, we. I, I think there are definitely times in our lives when we all need that specific assurance, right? Or at least it would be very helpful. Um, we did talk also, and it's it's worth repeating that. A couple of practical things about this private confession absolution is that one in my in my ordination vows and every LCMS pastor in their ordination vows, whenever they get ordained, they vow uh, the seal of the confessional that they're not going to reveal any sins confessed to them, right? Um, not to not to their wife at home, not before a court of law, uh, nowhere, no how is a pastor going to reveal. Um, the sins confessed to him in the confessional. If he does, then he should be defrocked. Um, he, he should not be a, a pastor, right? That's, um, that's how the LCMS constitution and bylaws work, actually, is uh, if, a, if a pastor is, is caught uh, revealing sins um, under the seal of the confessional, then, then he should be defrocked. Uh, second of all is that, I made this point last week too, but um, it's always worth remembering that a lot of people, you know, are scared to come to private confession absolution because I don't want the pastor to think of me differently. Um, he he doesn't know, you know, what all I've done and and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, first of all, I actually don't really remember any of the sins that have been confessed to me. <laughs> I I really don't. Um, I, it's uh I think it's a blessing of the Holy Spirit, like that He does give us this. Uh, blindness, if you will, um, that, you know, this is just part of the job and um, I hear these these confessions and then I, I pronounce forgiveness and then it's done, right? It's over. It's water under the bridge. Um, it doesn't change the way I think about anyone uh, if, they, if they've come to me and told me something. Uh, second of all is that I'm not really ever surprised by anything either, right? Uh, I, I really do know how poor and miserable sinners we all are. Uh, it, it never, people always are like, you're, you're never, you're never going to believe what I'm going to tell you. And then I, I'm like, yeah, I heard that like two weeks ago from someone else, you know, um, not, not, I don't, not talking about confessions specifically, but, um, in that, in that instance, just, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not surprised by things that happen in this world and by things people go through. So, um, yeah, no, 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 that would be breaking the seal of the confessional. That would be bad. So. Um, we also talked about, I think this is what we ended on last week, um, 
people often ask, like, well, what if someone confesses a crime to you? And and we talked last week about um, what is repentance. So if someone, part of, repentance is wanting to do better and change your ways, right? So if someone confesses that, you know, um, they've murdered someone or something like that to me, and I tell them, uh, you know, that's great, we can do confession absolution, but you're going to need to go and also turn yourself in. But they say, oh, no, I don't want to do that. I just want forgiveness. Well, I'm not going to forgive their sins because they're not repentant, right? Um, repentance is to change your way, right? Repentance is to make things right. And um, if someone is unrepentant, then their confession is not under the seal of the confessional, right? Um, so there are earthly consequences to sin, right? You can be forgiven before God in heaven, um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't things that need to happen on this side of earth to make things right, right? So um, there, is a, there, there is a nuance there with that, that people can't, aren't allowed to abuse private confession absolution either, right? Just to make themselves feel better, but they're not really sorry for their sins, right? So, um, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so there are um, there are stipulations in most uh, legal system. You know, they, you know, it depends on county and state and federal and all that. But um, within the legal codes, there are stipulations for for this. Um, and there has not been there really there, there's been very few cases about this where there's been someone. Uh, like a priest or a pastor that's been asked to testify on the basis of a confession. Um, it, and it hasn't happened in, in decades. Um, I think there have been a few instances that there's been some questions about this, but um, it, it seems that this is well understood in the legal system. I remember talking about this in seminary once, and I actually asked my brother about it, who's a prosecuting attorney, and he... Um, sent me some links about different laws you can read, but there are special protection, protections for ministers in, uh, w- within the legal system. Yep. Uh, so anyway, that's private confession and absolution. Um, and that's really what Luther is talking about in the, the catechism, right? So um, a- a- we actually read part of it earlier, but um, first he asks, what sin should we confess? And he says, before God... As we do in the Lord's Prayer, we should plead guilty of all sins, even those we are not aware of. But before the pastor, talking about private confession and absolution, he says we should uh, confess those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. And then that's what we read today is what are those? And he gives this advice. Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Right. So take your vocations. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? And then think about the Ten Commandments and how those two things relate. So have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you been hot-tempered, rude, or quarrelsome? Have you hurt someone by your words or deeds? Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything, or done anything, any harm? And so it is worthwhile to... Um, so on, on one hand, right, we want to live our lives, and um, when, we, when we pray in our devotional life and when we come to divine service and, and confess our sins... Right? We want to confess all our sins. 
in a general way. But it is also worth it, Luther points out here, to actually do some inward meditation, some inward reflection on your life and think about where, and it's not to try and like come up with sins that you, know, that you haven't committed or something like that, but it is worth it to reflect on where am I struggling with sin in my life, right? And you might find things if you ask yourself some of these questions that you hadn't really thought about before, but that you do need to repent of, right? So um, that, it's kind of an interesting uh, thing that Luther points out there. And I, th- I think that's worth noting is that um, as part of our kind of devotional life and, and whatnot, if we can um, have some meditation on, okay, where, where am I struggling with sin, right? And obviously that maybe there's something that you just know, right? Maybe there's something that's like, I, it's on my mind and heart. I've done that. I need to repent of it. And may, but maybe there's other things that you don't really think about, but then you start to ask these questions and you kind of realize, right? And um, so whether or not you come to private confession absolution or if, you're, if you, uh, you know, pray on those things during the time of silence and the pub- public confession absolution or if you pray to God about those things, um, however you end up dealing with that, uh, it is worth it to ask those questions, I think. Okay. So that's kind of the confession and absolution side of things. Um, let's get on to the office of the keys. So the next question Luther asks in um, the small catechism, and these were actually, uh, these next couple questions were not written by Luther. Uh, they were, I just said Luther, but um, they were added into the catechism by by the generation after Luther, but... That's fine. It, I mean, it doesn't really change anything. All right, what is the office of the keys? The office of the keys is that special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. Okay, so uh, this is where we get the idea of pastors from. Okay, so let's actually look at, uh, we're going to look at John 20 in a second, but first of all, Let's look at Matthew 16. And one thing worth noting too, um, by the way, and I think this is almost the best argument for why we should have pastors in the church, is because if you read the Bible, pastors are obvious, right? In the Old Testament, they have they have priests and prophets, right? They have the, the Levites um, who are especially put in charge of administering the sacrifices in the temple. And then you have the prophets who are especially put in charge of proclaiming God's word. Those tasks or those needs don't go away in the New Testament. Now, what happens at the temple goes away in the New Testament, right? That you change from the Passover and the Yom Kippur into baptism in the Lord's Supper, but someone needing to do those things doesn't go away in the New Testament. And the need for the proclamation of God's word doesn't go away in the New Testament. And what does Jesus do almost immediately when he starts his ministry? He calls 12 apostles, right? And he spends three years training them. 
and he constantly is taking them um, off to the side to talk to them specifically, right? And then he gives them the charge in John 20, as we're going to read, to to forgive and to retain sins. And then, of course, we can look at what happens in Acts and who's in charge of what and why. And then there are three books, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus in the New Testament, entirely devoted to Paul training up other pastors. Um, And then Paul also in those places talks about ordination and uh, the laying on of hands, which we can also talk about. But to me, it's like when you add all those things together, if you just read the Bible, both Old and New Testament, the need for pastors seems completely obvious. Um, and, and, it, and it is an institution by Christ specifically for, for his church, right? So um, the reason I bring that up is because I think sometimes there's this question uh, in the American uh Christian church at large, because there are a number of church bodies who just don't really care about pastors that much, right? It's like, oh, well, whoever whoever's here on Sunday can do it, right? Um, and you don't need much training, right? You can go get, just go take a couple classes online or whatever, and you'll get a certificate, and that's good enough. Um, but that's that's not how Lutherans have ever viewed the office of the Holy Ministry, because that's not really how the Bible views it. The Bible views it as something set aside, Right, and maybe the first, best place is First Timothy three, where Paul gives these are the qualifications for an overseer, which is his favorite term for the office of the ministry. But anyway, let's look at Matthew sixteen, and if you have questions about that, we can talk about that. But uh, let's look at Matthew sixteen, uh, and kind of looking around verse thirteen to start with. So um, Jesus takes the twelve, the disciples, up to. Uh, up on the mountain and uh, in the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is up north, it's um, kind of secluded. And he asked them, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they reply, some say John the Baptist, so on and so forth. You kind of know the story. And then Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this has not been revealed to you by man, but by my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are uh, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Okay? And then we get to the verse that we want to look at, verse 19. I will give you, so he's saying, um, he says, look, on the confession of this, on, on this confession, you are the son of the living God, the confession that Peter makes. And it's, he, he almost, Jesus actually tells a joke here, because uh, Petros, Peter in Greek, means rock. So Jesus is telling a joke. The, um, the Roman Catholics take this joke entirely too seriously. They don't think Jesus is joking, and they think this is when Jesus institutes the office of the papacy, the pope, um, which is entirely ridiculous because a few verses later, uh, Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. So, you know, take that for what you will. But um, it, Jesus is actually... I, I think he's telling a joke. Um, he's saying, look, Peter, because Peter always, Peter always thinks he's like really special, right? He's like, I want to sit at your right hand and um, and he's the one who gives this this big confession and whenever they go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter's like, oh, we could stay here forever. Let's build all the, let's build tents and, and, and we're going to stay here forever with you, Jesus. Um, and uh, 
he, I think Jesus, when he says on this rock, he's talking about the confession that Peter made, not about Peter himself. Um, but uh, the, the word he uses is um, slightly different than, than Petros. It's Petra. Uh, so he says, um, you know, blessed are you, little rock, on this big rock I'm going to build my church, basically. Anyway, it's kind of a joke, um, or it's a it's a literary device that Jesus is using to make a point. But anyway, that's beside the point. Um, the point is, he then tells the disciples, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. This is where we get the phrase, the office of the keys. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. So um, his point there is that this image of what the, the, these future pastors in his church are going to do is they're going to hold the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whenever they bind someone in their sin on earth, that means the gate is going to be closed to them in heaven. And whenever they lose someone of their sins on earth, then the gate's going to be open to them in heaven. Right? And, this has, and then the, it sounds kind of odd at first, right? But then in John 20, after Jesus' resurrection, he comes back to his disciples. Um, and then we get this in the catechism, right? Where is this written? St. John the Evangelist writes in chapter 20, the Lord Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is their ordination. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Okay, so he gives the called apostles, the called disciples of Christ, who have this job of overseer, this job of pastor, the ability to speak in the stead of Christ to forgive and to retain sins. And that's why that's one of the pastor's main jobs, right? The pastor's main job, uh, and, and you, if you think about it, right, is to the pastor's main job is to preach the word and administer the sacraments, and all of that has to do with the forgiveness of sins, right? Because what's the word in the sacraments? It's the means of grace. It's the way we receive the forgiveness of sins, right? So this is the pastor's job is to be the guy who gives out the forgiveness of sins. Now that's half the job, right? Um, let's talk about that half still a little bit more though first before we get into the other half. Um, this is, and this is also what makes both the public and the divine service confession and private confession and absolution so great is that when the pastor says, I forgive you your sins in the stead of Christ, that's like Christ speaking to you, right? And it's not about me. Like, it, you know, it always feels weird as a pastor to talk about the theology of pastors because it sounds like, you know, you're just talking about yourself and um, how great your job is, which my job is great. I mean, I love my job, but uh, I'm really just trying to talk about what the Bible says here. I'm not trying to talk about myself because it's not about me, right? When I speak in the stead of Christ, it's not me, right? When I say, I forgive you, I'm not saying I, you know, Sawyer Andrew Myers forgive you. I'm saying I, the voice box of Christ forgives you. That's why Lutherans wear the clerical colors, right? Because the black is like, Okay, the black is me. This is like sinfulness, right? And the white, this is the voice box. This is not this is not me speaking, right? This is when when Christ is speaking. Okay. Um, and then 
the, the catechism goes on to describe this, right? What do you believe according to these words? I believe that when called ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command, in particular when they exclude openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation and absolve those who repent of their sins and want to do better, this is just as valid and certain even in heaven as if Christ our dear Lord dealt with us himself. Okay. Now let's talk about that other half, um, the retaining of sins. right? So Jesus doesn't only say, forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are he also says, if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And as we just read too, when in particular, when pastors exclude openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation. Part of the job of pastors, and this is also what we talked about when we were talking about um, hearing a, a, a true confession, is to recognize when someone is unrepentant and to hold them in their sin. To say you're not forgiven until you repent, right? Because if uh, and and this is the big danger, if someone um, thinks that they are forgiven when they are actually unrepentant, then they're putting their soul in danger, right? Um, this is ultimately what we call church discipline. That people need to know when they're stuck in their sin. Otherwise, they're risking going to hell. And the reason that we don't forgive their sins if they're unrepentant is because we want them to go to heaven. We want them to repent. Okay, so let me make this more practical for you. Um, if you look at 1 Corinthians 5, this actually happens to Paul in the Corinthian church. So this is 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. Okay, so a guy is sleeping with his stepmom, basically. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out your fellowship and, and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, so he's saying next Sunday when you get together, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Right? He says, excommunicate him. Why should you excommunicate him? Why should you hand him over to Satan? so that he would recognize the seriousness of his sin and be saved on the day of the Lord. Um, and actually in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about um, uh, a guy who comes back into church after, after repenting, who had been kicked out. And a lot of people, a lot of theologians think that it's actually that guy, right? That they kicked out for, for sleeping with his, with his stepmom. Um, and so... Uh, and another another place to look, by the way, we should do this too, is um, Matthew 18, uh, where Jesus says what to do when there's someone who won't, won't repent of their sin. So if you see someone, so this basically in the church, right? If if someone sees someone sinning, this is verse 15, Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. 
if he listens to you, you have won your brother over, right? He, if he, he listens to you, he repents, uh, he, he asks for, for, he does confession, absolution, whatever, right? It's, it's good, right? You've won him over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every may, matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then it's become public, right? Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, right? So again, Jesus repeats what he had already talked about in Matthew 16 to the disciples, right? So this is what we do in the church, right? The main thing we want to do is forgive sins of the repentant. But there are times when people refuse to repent of their sins, right? There are times I've, that um, maybe the most common one that I hear of uh, that, that other pastors have to deal with is when young couples are living together before marriage and they don't want to separate before they get married, right? And the pastor has to tell them, hey, look, uh, you can't commune here until you, you separate, right? And I'm not going to marry you until you separate. Um, and that's actually the first step, right? So uh, the way this plays out in the Lutheran church uh, is generally that there's, you know, we follow Matthew 18. So first it's one-on-one, then maybe a couple elders with the pastor. Um, and then it becomes public mainly by way of what, what LCMS pastors normally call the soft ban. So the soft ban is just that they're still coming to church, but they can't take communion. Um, and then if things escalate where they continue to refuse to repent, then um, we do have a right of excommunication in, uh, in our what's called our agenda, where we have all our extra rights of things. Now, the thing about the right of excommunication is it's almost never used because almost always the person just leaves church before before it can be used. I, I always think it would be not funny. It's obviously very serious, but like interesting if someone would actually come to church and come up to the front to go through the right of excommunication, right? I just can't imagine anyone actually doing that in our day and age. They would just not show up, right? So, um, but anyway, again, it's not a laughing matter. I just think it would be interesting. Go ahead. Right, yeah. Yeah, and, and the, the Eighth Commandment is always included in this, right? And when we talked about the Eighth Commandment, remember what we talked about. The end goal is truth, right? Do not give false testimony against your neighbor, right? So um, the, the Eighth Commandment can go wrong in a couple ways, um, but the, yeah, the end goal is always truth, right? So sometimes people use the Eighth Commandment to say, well, we can't ever say anything about anyone ever because we just need to be really nice to each other. Right? And that's not the point of the Eighth Commandment. The point of the Eighth Commandment is truth. Right? There needs to be a true testimony. So just because somebody feels like they've been sinned against and wrong, right. doesn't mean that they did. Yeah, we don't base things on feelings. Right? We base things on, on facts. So, so even yeah. though it doesn't say that's got to be part of it, right? Yeah. Well, it even says, I mean, it does say that, that, a, um, that, that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Right, so it's implied there, yeah, that we're that it has to be 
a truthful testimony, right? Yeah. Um, but ultimately, we want people to come back, right? We, want, we don't want people to perish because of their sin. Right now, they are perishing because of their sin. Right now, they're, they're under the judgment of God, right? And um, you don't make that better by saying, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it, right? You make it better by saying, look, you're going to go to hell if you don't, if you don't repent. And uh, then hopefully that's a wake-up call at some point. Yeah, Judith. You mentioned the right of excommunication. Yes. Does the church have an actual right? Yeah, we do. Um, I don't know if we have an agenda in this building, but I can bring one. Uh, That is also true. And your membership is what allows you then to partake of the means of grace. You deny it if you don't have the membership. Right. You're denied the means of grace. So that's also true. So there's um, basically there's two sides to it. There's a theological side to it, which is kind of what I'm talking about, and then a more legal side to it, which is like the how how do you do this with the church constitution and bylaws, um, and uh, yeah, normally with the Constitution and bylaws, excommunication also requires the vote of the voters' assembly. Uh, in that, and that's just for like that's for good order, right? And that's part of Matthew 18 in, in a sense too, that this is how the LCMS churches have determined to do step three, which is to bring it to the whole church. Um, but there is actually. Also, if if you wanted to do it um, for whatever reason, a theological right um, that you could do either during church or after church or whatever uh, to to excommunicate someone, and it's actually it's actually a nice right in the sense that it does like it it reads some of those passages that we just went through and like why church discipline is important and stuff, but that's. Again, it's almost never used because to use it, you'd have to have the person there, and they're almost never there when you excommunicate them. So, um, no, it no because um, that because they basically never are, right? I mean, they, I mean, it, it would be impossible um, to excommunicate someone if they had to be there because they just won't ever show up. And so it depends on the church constitution, um, on what the vote is needed, right? Um, some constitutions require a hundred percent vote, which or a unanimous vote, uh, which is, in my opinion, probably not the wisest idea because you're probably always going to have someone who's like, "Oh, that's my good buddy," you know. I don't think we should do this. Or someone doesn't know all the facts or whatever. So then that that makes it a little complicated. Like, but um, oh, the one thing I was gonna say anyway. So that's the the church constitution side of it. Um, I don't even know what y'all's constitution says about it, but um, I think normally it's like a 
yeah, like a two-thirds vote or a three-fourths vote or something like that. Uh, the other thing I was going to say, though, is so yes, the it is true that generally speaking, membership in good standing at an LCMS church, as regulated by the Constitution, does um, generally mean that someone can partake in the means of grace. At the end of the day, however, when it comes to the Lord's Supper and to administering the means of grace, that is the sole job of the pastor. So the pastor does get to say on a given, at a given moment, at a, on a given Sunday or whatever, uh, if someone does or does not commune at that table, because that's the pastor's responsibility as the steward of the gifts. Um, so we can talk more about that as well if you want, but um, it's the it's given to the pastor's right to um, forgive and to retain sins, and so uh, obviously the pastor is going to include the elders on that, and and ultimately then the congregation, but um, it's. Uh, it's the pastor who gets to say whether or not they're in good standing or not, right? So a member in good standing, well, who gets to say when they're in good standing and when they're not? It's the, the pastor and then with, of course, with the consultation of the elders. So, and that's, um, that's not to be some sort of like dictator or whatever. That's just literally the pastor's job. So Paul, Paul calls the pastor's uh, the steward of the sacraments or the steward of the mysteries. So that's, it's the pastor's table. He's responsible. This is actually, uh, when we talk about closed communion, this is to me the biggest argument for closed communion. Other, I mean, I think 1 Corinthians 11 is very clear, but other than 1 Corinthians 11 on uh, the practice of closed communion, the, the pastor is judged more strictly on the last day than the people are. Right? The Bible's very clear about this, that the overseers and the prophets and the teachers are judged doubly on judgment day. And so the it's the pastor's responsibility um, that his altar is faithful. And so I don't, um, like this is, this is why Paul says, it's a little thing for me to be judged by a human court because I'm going to be judged by God one day, right? So I'm going to be faithful to what I need to be faithful to, um, regardless of how a human court feels about me. Yeah, Jerry. Yeah. Well, there's certainly cases like that, um, and that's happened to me uh, before. So I, I mean, yes, we we have to rely on the grace of of God for that as well. I mean, no doubt we have to rely on God's grace for that. But um, as best as we're able, we are faithful, right? Um, yeah. So that is what it is. We're you know. We're poor pastors are poor miserable sinners too, and and we also make mistakes. But and and God's grace covers those just as much as any other sin. Yeah, sure. All right. Uh, any questions on the office of the keys?
or on, on the office of the ministry? All right. I'll also point this out too. Um, it just popped in my head, but it's probably important to talk about is uh, kind of what we were just talking about is also other than the direct commands of scripture, which are also important. Uh, this is also why men are supposed to be pastors and not women, right? Because men are the protectors and providers uh, in the order of creation. And um, the, I mean, the Bible is very clear that women are not supposed to be pastors, but just straight up. But otherwise, I, th- I think, I mean, the, the reasoning behind that, right, is we, we also don't want, we don't ask women to go into combat, right? Or at least we shouldn't. Uh, that's apparently debatable nowadays. They used to not be debatable. Um, but the job of a pastor, and again, this is, I mean, I'm not, just trying to talk about myself. I'm just talking about what the Bible says about pastors. Uh, but the job of, of a pastor is not one of little significance or little responsibility, right? It, it has a burden to bear with it. That's, that's why pastors wear stoles. It's symbolic of a, of a yoke, right? Like on an ox. Um, and Paul uses that analogy. He says, um, don't... Uh, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. And he's talking about people who get in the way of pastoral ministry. Um, but yeah, we uh, it's a responsibility for a man to take on uh, to protect women, right? As uh, in the order of creation, Adam is the head of Eve, right? So if, if a person is gonna take on the responsibility of a larger group, um, Biblically, that it's better for a man to do that than a woman, right? Because women are uh, better at, at nurturing and, and caring in a certain way um, than, anyway, I don't want to get all into the details of that, but um, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that the idea of, of, of men being pastors instead of women is partly because we don't want women to have to bear that responsibility, right? It's a, uh, um, it's a, it's a caring for the woman as a husband would care for his wife, right? A protecting, if you will. All right. Any other, uh, questions or comments on, on the office of the ministry? All right. Um, so let's get in. What time is it? Oh, never mind. Um, we'll just stop there because I'm not going to start a whole new topic right now. Any random questions about anything at all? We've got three minutes. Nothing. All right. Um, well, we'll just end a little early then. Uh, we'll get into the Lord's Supper next week. What we want to talk about with the Lord's Supper is the theology of the Lord's Supper, so specifically the real presence and we want to talk about closed communion. And then we're going to talk about um, this part in the catechism called Christian Questions and Their Answers, which is about preparing to receive communion. So we'll get into the practical things about communion when we do that. So those will be, that'll probably take another couple weeks, but that's, uh, that's where we're going. All right, let's end in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for all your gifts, uh, especially for the 
gift that you gave to your church in the Office of the Keys, that she would have pastors who would administer your word and your sacrament and preachers that people might hear the gospel and believe. We pray that you would be with all pastors of your church and keep them faithful in their preaching and in holy living. And we pray that you would continue to keep before our eyes the forgiveness of our sins that you stand ready and waiting to give to those who repent. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.